Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, uh, Stackwaddy game, over to you. Dave, I'm going to open my innings here with <laughs> stage names. All right? So, these, All right. these are not the names that these particular rock stars uh, were born with. These are the names they adopted to perform. They're nom, the, nom de rock. You're nom de rock, nom de stage, precisely. Okay, so okay. five stage names, one of which is fictitious, one of, it, one of which is made, made up by me. And they are, in no particular order, AK-47. AK-47. No, AK-47. Oh, AK-47. AK-47. Leicester Square. All uh, right. Okay. <laughs> Lance de Boyle. All right. Cobalt Stargazer. Cobalt Stargazer. Yeah. And Richard Famous. Richard Famous. Richard Famous. Yeah. So that's AK-47, Leicester Square, Lance de Boyle, Cobalt Stargazer, and Richard Famous. One of those is made up by me. This well, is your challenge. I can Should hear the choose... oh, I can on. hear the distant tintinabulation of bells, mental bells here, but I can't place any of these. So I'm going to take a wild guess. Okay, I'm just take a stab here. I think the ringer is Lance de Boyle. <laughs> Excellent, terrific. There's a kind of adolescent thrill of <laughs> the ringer you I this game. your trap. You've fallen into my trap. It's brilliant. And Lance de Boyle, as any fool know, of course, was the drama of Poison Girls. <laughs> and Poison Girls, do you remember? You probably don't. Do you remember, do you remember the kind of uh, late 70s kind of mm. punk rock anarchist Poison Girls, whose name, of course, was a, was, a, was a pun in itself. Singer was Vice Versa. And the drummer was, uh, was, uh, was Lance de Boyle. The girl, the girl played, called Sue played the bass. I can't remember the stage name. And the guitarist was Richard Famous. Uh, so there's two uh, members two of, of Poison Girls there. Yeah, Cobalt Stargazer was actually a member of, uh, of uh, Zodiac Mind Warp and the Love Reaction. Oh, of course. Of course. Was. Of course. Uh, you'll have many of their records, uh, along with Slam Thunderhide, which is not a great thing. <laughs> and Leicester Square was the guitarist of the uh, monochrome set. 
So there you go. So the ringer is AK-47, which I thought, I did check, why isn't there a rap star uh, named after the, the famous Kalashnikov rifle? I don't know. There isn't, though. So there we are. Oh, well, so you, you, you're right. You're ahead. Let's see if you're still ahead after the next round. All right, go on. It's a bit topical, this is, actually, because yeah. you and I were, were talking yesterday about, about the new Bob Dylan record, yeah. which I don't just got around to listening to. And, uh, you know, because I, I do tend to take the views, take the view of Bob Dylan record based on experience going back to about 1964, which is what you think about them when they come out is neither here nor there. It, it's what you think about them two, three years later. Completely. It's, it's kind of, there are loads of these records that, oh, God. that, that were celebrated with, you know, uh, with fanfares at the time they came out that nobody plays anymore. You know? No. And, uh, Absolutely, and, and the and reverse I, John Wesley Hardy acrobat being completely unmoved by that, and now it's probably my favourite. It's probably my favourite. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. And um, so, and also, I tend to, I tend to not get along with those Bob Dylan records that I always feel are put out to kind of please his fans, like occasionally. I think there are those. So, I was saying to you that I felt that. The lyrics to the new Bob Dylan record had been had been uh, accomplished by him finding a website that can turn your doggerel into a Bob Dylan song. You just you just Dylan lyric your, generator. Dylan lyric generator. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, here are three lyrics from the new Bob Dylan record. Yep. One of which is not a lyric from the new Bob Dylan record. And your job in the Statwaddy game is to identify uh, which of these is bogus. So here we go. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Go on. You got you got to sort of think these in a Bob Dylan voice. I think anyway. Yeah, you, in your head, you're talking like this already. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know the secret. The black that... owl of night is flying through the wardrobe of my soul. <laughs> Sorry, no far away, go on. You started me, I can't stop. Oh, it's a tap, you can't turn off. Oh I, I, know, <laughs> I know the secrets the devil tries to hide. I was in the, in the halls of justice when Joe McCarthy lied and in the dungeon where John the Baptist died. That's one. Okay. Here's yeah. another. Here's another. Very plausible. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like Anne Frank like Indiana Jones, and them British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and then, if you can credit it, I'll play Beethoven's sonatas and Chopin's preludes. I contain multitudes. So, of those three, which one is the ringer. Over to you. The terrible thing is, I think I know the answer to this, because oh, I listened to it in some detail. Yes, I know bollocks indeed. And the thing about the Rolling Stones, is it's a real line. It's extraordinary, isn't it? The bad boys, the Rolling Stones. So that's them, real. And them British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I know, I know. And also, sorry, and hold on, hold on a second. And Frank, the Rolling Stones. Yeah, never, never previously contained in the same sentence. Or thought, ever. No, how does that work? <laughs> At one point, he mentions Indiana Jones. He does, in between. And no, that's right. No, it's, it's in there. Isn't it? That's right, yeah. So, victim of Holocaust, fictional adventure hero, yeah. and, you know, extremely wealthy chaps in their 70s and 80s. Yeah. 
It doesn't quite hang, up, hang together. Anyway, go on. Absolutely sort of. So that, and the other, the one about the preludes, the Chopin's preludes, I know that to be also real because the opening song is I Contain Multitudes and doesn't that just trip off the tongue? And he has six rhyming uh, lyrics that, that go with that, which end with the words, I paint nudes, all the young dudes. <laughs> Am I right? I think oh, so. Yeah. Eat fast foods, my many moods, and Chopin's preludes. Isn't that astonishing? <laughs> I know. So, so you get, are you, you working that, around that, you know, telling that me even, that, that, even that, that the one I've started with is made up? Is that what you're suggesting now? I am the one. Yeah, the one you saw, which is brilliant, with John the Baptist and all that, is, is made up, and, and it's fantastically convincing. But it's it's interesting that even Bob Dylan, when he's it's sounds, not it's, banal it's, enough, is it really? No, 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 it's not. No, that's true. It's too deep and spiritual. <laughs> but it's you know, obviously, when you sit down and write a song like I contain multitudes and decide that each line is going to have to rhyme at the end of each verse with the title of the song, you must write down on a piece of paper, as presumably Leonard Cohen did with Hallelujah write down every single conceivable rhyme and then and then engineer your thought process towards so to, it. To, to be fair to Leonard Cohen, he did say that writing Alleluia took him years, didn't it? It took him, he told does me it, it took five he years. Had, he had a long conversation with Bob Dylan about how long does it take to write a song. Bob Dylan said 15 minutes. Or yeah, whatever. 15 minutes, and, yeah. And, uh, and, and whereas at, Leonard Cohen is was a poet, genuinely a poet. Yeah. Poets spend years chiseling yeah. getting things right. Pop songwriters don't do that at all. They don't he work it that claimed, way. No, and Leonard Cohen claimed to have had something like the reason 70 verses to Hallelujah, which I, again, I can't believe because where are the 70 rhymes coming from? Well, <laughs> I don't know. But the weird thing about I Contain Multitudes is you're seeking all those rhymes for a line that you didn't write because that's Walt Whitman, I Contain Multitudes. That's right. So that's, right. that's like taking, all right, I'm going to, I can't think of an example of a poem named after you know, where its title is is in the poem kind of thing, but it's it's like me deciding to write. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna make everything rhyme with the love song of J. Alfred Proof. Nothing Proofrock. That's right. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a bizarre Mariner. thing to do. Absolutely. This lime tree bower my prison. Right. We've got now got to find so, forty so, rhymes for that. So you know, I I I, I couldn't help thinking. My God, Bob, there's a lot of words on this record. And uh, and I think that's one of the things people like. People like a lot of words, don't they? But, they like, they like but let me, let me contrast this Go with on. something I wrote down here, which is I happen to be thinking of a Bob Dylan song from probably 1964 called Only a Pawn in the Game. Yeah. Is it on the times the hour changing? I, I think, think it is, yeah. And the final verse of that, and it's the true story of Medgar Evers, who was a civil rights worker who was, uh, who was murdered in the southern states. And the final verse is, Today Medgar Evers was buried from the bullet he caught, buried from the bullet. They lowered him down as a king, but when the shadowy sun sets on the one, shadowy sun sets on the one, that fired the gun, He'll see by his grave on the stone that remains carved next to his name, his epitaph plain, only a pawn in the game. Fantastic. That is brilliant writing. Incredible. And, that, and how old was he when he did that? Well, really. he would have been 22 or something, wouldn't he? 23, maybe? That's I mean, and that is just, 
it, it forces you to sing it in a certain way. It forces you to think it in a certain way. You know what it I mean? Does. It gathers momentum all the way through it. It's not just a load of words. It's, it's you know... It's, it's got internal like rhythms, hasn't it? It's got, absolutely. It's got internal assonance, you know, fantastic. And, you know, he was, he was just knocking that stuff out like there was no tomorrow. Uh, the, you know, in his very early 20s. Are you suggesting he's knocking it out a bit more <laughs> so today? <laughs> well, I, I, I just felt... I felt there's no inner tension within those songs, you know. There's no inner drama within those songs. It's just, here's a verse, and here's another verse, and here's a further verse. You know? uh, but, but that's just based on my very... But also... Very, don't, I, mean, I, I, I probably totally changed my mind about it, you know. Don't write me letters. I'm not. I'm not condemning Bob Dylan. You know, hell, I've been listening to Bob Dylan records since 1963, 64, uh, and I will continue to listen to them as, as long as he keeps on producing them. But uh, but just occasionally, I think mm, this sounds a little bit glib to me. <laughs> anyway, but they they promise enormous depth. Then there's a song called Mother of Muses, and uh, the title refers to um, to Nemesis. I think it's the daughter of Uranus, the god of the sky, and Gaia, the mother of the earth. So already you're, you're, you're in the deep end, aren't you? And I think a lot of that has really, really connected with, with, the, with the reviews, you know, because it's the end of lockdown. You know, people, particularly rock critics, have spent a lot of time, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, kind of pondering things in an existential way. And this, this, here is somebody writing about something enormously three-dimensional, three whole records is complicated and deep and spiritual and lyrical, isn't it? And so that's just, it's made an impression. It's an amazing record, I think. Well, also, the other, another interesting thing about it, I think, is that he's, he's engineered a way of, of producing music that's tailored to his capabilities. Because Bob Dylan had, uh, has terrible arthritis, isn't he? He can't, yeah. play, he can't play the guitar anymore. And then he stopped playing the piano to the point where he was just prodding at the piano with a lot of stiff looking fingers. You and I went to see him at, um, at the Albert Hall, didn't we, about 2015? And he was barely playing the piano then. In fact, he would spend most of the gig just standing at the microphone stand. Mm. Now he's kind of engineered this, uh, you know, his, his original songs have very simple chord sequences and then quite extravagant melodies. And, uh, and uh, now it's, it's the opposite. You know, he's produced this thing, which is virtually recitation. It's virtually spoken word. Isn't it? Yes. Because his voice, his voice is, is just not capable can't, of yeah, no, any of that kind of range anymore. Uh, and yet the, the arrangements are incredibly ornate and, and complicated, full of all sorts of jazz chords. And it's just, uh, it, I think it's fantastic. It's really haunting, brilliant record. But I know is what you it, mean. Is it as good as the times they are changing? Is well, it as good as another side of Bob Dylan? Which is know. what the critics are saying. <laughs> I like this critic. <laughs> Word podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. So, by the way, have you seen the chart? I know you're you're, you're a close follower of the uppers and downers. And <laughs> the uppers, the downers, they're just hanging around us. In the, uh, in the LP chart, I meant particularly. Have you noticed what number one and number two are this week? Well, I've got a feeling that I've got a feeling Neil Young's record selling pretty well, but I don't know. What's the answer? Okay. Number one is Bob Dylan. <laughs> Of course. And number two yeah. is Neil Young. And Neil Young's record uh, is a load of stuff. He made it in 1974, 75, something like that. That's right. It was Home, it? Homegrown. It's really good. It's really yeah, yeah. It's kind of made around the time of On the Beach and all that stuff. It kind of sounds like that. It's really good. So we've been, we've but, been but, you know, those are the back. Those are the number one and two records. 
How old's Bob Dylan? He's not 80 yet. Is he, he was now? born in 1941. So, uh, yeah. Oh, God, he's not far off. He's not far off. So, so he's, he's 80 been... next year. He's yeah. 80 next year. He's the top of the pops. He's he's 80 next year. And uh, and Neil Young kind of not a lot far behind. Not far him. behind. We've been <laughs> we've been dropped through a wormhole in time. <laughs> I know, it's absolutely, absolutely astonishing. Isn't that amazing? And uh, no, uh, the reason it struck me is, uh, ironically, I was looking this morning, there's a thing on the BBC site, the Katie Tunstall, a kind of, a kind of plea to, uh, to camera about, about music streaming and how much people get paid for music streaming. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, you know, I think, I think it's, it's I think there's a tone here that, that musicians ought to be a little bit careful of using which is saying COVID-19 has been really bad for music. Well, hello. <laughs> what about the airline industry? What about the economy of I Italy? I think it's affected what everybody. About, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What about theatres? What about absolutely everybody? No, there's no doubt it's had a huge effect on, on live music, no doubt, but live entertainment of any kind, you know. Uh, and so there's, there's, it's difficult to... to you know, not to make it look like special pleading, you know what I mean? Because yeah. everybody, everybody in that kind of business is, is massively affected by this. And, uh, and they, you know, they, and it brings up the usual arguments about streaming, you know, that we get a quarter of a, whatever, whatever coin it is per stream. Oh, we, she said that Spotify, uh, I remember that she said, Spotify pay a third of a penny per play. Well, I, 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 I'd, I'd be surprised if it's as much as that because I mean it may be, but but the point is that a play is just a play, it? you know it's not it, it's not it's not owning something, it's not a play to twenty million people, it's a play to one it's, person. It's a play to one person. Yeah. And so, and so you it's know, a loan. Trying You're not to buying anything. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, all right. You know, trying to trying to trying to balance it with your view of of the old model of somebody buying something or somebody listening to something on the radio, it doesn't quite work. It's a very very different thing, you know. And uh, but she also makes the interesting point. She says that um, that the problem is that the more music there is, the lower the price goes. Well, it's kind of true, you know. But that's kind of the case with everything, isn't it? You know, I don't know if you've had this. Whenever I have a book coming out, if I go and wander into Worcester's, which at the moment I can't do, although soon I will be able to do it. One day. No, I could do it now. You could I? do it, actually. No, I could do it now. Years, okay. Yeah. Again, well, let me tell you what, what goes through your mind if you're an author and you wander into Worcester's before your book comes out. You think, oh, my God, how depressing. How many books are there here? Yeah, this is what I'm up against. <laughs> this is what's uh, this is what's uh, you know the, angling a, for people's attention this week. And there'll be a whole load more next week, and a whole yeah. load more the week after that. And the ones that have brighter place this week won't have brighter place in three weeks' time. You know, and week. there's also an awful lot of classics in the past that people are uh, <laughs> well, just might possibly be tempted to go back and buy. So. It's you know, it's if you ever think about this that 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 thing, you know, people always talk about. New music has been the great unargued good, but actually, it, it's all this stuff drives out other stuff, you know. Because yeah. the human, we've only got wave band for a certain amount of stuff, haven't we? You know. Yeah. And that's why it's really funny 
that in the year 2020, the number one records are Bob Dylan and then Neil Young, you know what I mean? Because these are relationships people formed all those years ago that are still really strong to this day. It's absolutely remarkable, isn't it? It is, and also they, they chime with, the, with what's going on in the world right now perfectly i suppose they they, i suppose they oh, did they did i mean you know you think dylan particularly there's a great interview with dylan in the new york times where he talks about um you know the george floyd uh tragedy and of course you know, this is the guy who wrote you know emmett till and oxford town and all well, those only songs. a pawn in the game I mean, all a pawn in the game exactly i know another thing that uh that katie tunstall mentioned was that i think it was that three music companies own 70 percent of all recorded music in history isn't that what she said well, yeah, Absolutely and I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, they, they've all think been so. absorbed into, into a small number of, you know, a handful of, uh, of, of massive companies that deal, that deal in... But you'd find the same thing if you went into book publishing. You know, you'd probably find the same thing in the movie business. Yeah. Control resides in very few hands, you know. Who owns... Look at the number of people who own streaming. It's not that many. You know... In the world of the internet, we're supposed to let a million flowers bloom. The truth is, there are a very small number of winners, aren't there? Yeah. That's everybody else, you know. There isn't a second Amazon, is there? That's no. There's just one. But I did feel a bit of sympathy for her, you know, in that you're sitting there thinking your mainstream, your main revenue stream is live performance, and live performance is just completely out of the game. Oh, and yeah. So you're now relying on people streaming, and you're getting absolutely pathetic returns for that. And so, you know, making money as a musician, how phenomenally difficult. But, you know, if, you know, if you, were, if you weren't Paul Simon or somebody really big, and it, this had been 20 years ago, and if you couldn't play live, you would have been relying on income from royalties of records. And there weren't that many people who got that much royalty income from records. There would be a small number who get, if you were Fleetwood Mac or the Bee Gees or whatever, you get a huge sum of money. But if you were the average, you know, musician, you wouldn't get an awful lot of that. I interviewed Richard Thompson once, and he told me that he never had a royalty statement. He must <laughs> have done. He must have had a statement, but he'd never actually... I think what he was saying was, look, throughout his career, Richard Thompson's had a long and successful career, uh, and he's done what he wanted to do, and that, God bless him. Um, but, you know, basically, he paid advances to put out records, and then goes on tour. And, you know, the cases of the records actually breaking their advance in the terms of paying him something more, quite few and far between. In his case. No, that's true. Well, yeah, but he's, um, okay, but he's not unsuccessful. No, he's not unsuccessful, but it's still Henry the Human Fly, isn't it? It's things well, that weren't except, necessarily... Except, it's really interesting. I, I can't remember I, I said something when I... I posted something the other week. You know, when we were talking about um, Richard Thompson's song, I Want to See the Bright Lights yeah, like yeah, being, yeah. being taken up by Mark Ronson, you know, and that Richard Thompson probably had a call from his publisher saying, sit down, you made a lot of money, you know. Hats and, in the uh, air. And I kind of, I tweeted something about this. And somebody said, well, that's, that's only right in the view of the fact that he spent all his career playing to half-empty halls. And I thought, Hang on a second. No, he, no, he hasn't. Nobody plays. Nobody. I've seen Richard Thompson since yeah. 1972. 
and he's never played to half empty halls. He doesn't play to huge places, although he has done occasionally. You know, he, he knows his audience. The Richard Thompson audience doesn't get massively bigger, but it doesn't get smaller either. It's there, and it's a faithful audience, and he can rely on it. And I'm sure, I'm sure he, does, he does all right. He doesn't make Elton John sums of money, but I don't even necessarily want to have an Elton John-type career. Why does everybody think that anybody who is, who is not in that tiny bracket at the top is unfairly discriminated against? They're not, you know. Some people <laughs> work out a way to... Yeah, it's true, but that's a rock critic thing, isn't it? It's the fault of the of the of the public, the cloth-eared public. You know, it's their fault that these people are making more money. You should go out and buy their records. It's, you know, you've got to. Well, you, but, you're there, but the public can do what it, what it likes. You know, and and uh, and you know, and the thing that causes loads of grief is the public does what it likes. <laughs> the public doesn't feel that it has to provide you with a living. Uh, you know, it only does if it wants to, and so. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how many of those people, even if streaming wasn't around, how many of these people would be, if, you, if, you, if they couldn't play live, would be able to rely on royalty income. I'm sure some would, but I don't think it would apply to, to absolutely everybody. And so, you know, you could double what people have paid for streams. You could quadruple it. Is it going to make a huge amount of difference? I well, don't no, not if it's a third of a penny a stream. It's not gonna make it no, but if, if all you're doing but is... But it is you're... astonishing. People talk about millions of plays, you know, and you get from millions of plays, you get something like 230 quid or something, you know. Well, breathtaking. I, I mean, you must have these things. I tell you what it's like. It's like uh, public lending right. Do you get a statement every year from the, uh, whatever the organisation is, according to how your books are, you know, borrowed from public library. Yeah, I get those. And yeah, so yeah. you get a little bit and it's nice to have and it's good that you paid it. Nothing wrong with that at all. And I'm sure J.K. Rowling's is a bright fat check, you know, what I mean? yeah, whereas absolutely. mine's considerably more modest, but it's there. Well, that's what streaming is like. Yeah. Isn't it? It's borrowing something. And um, if you took it away... Would people go and buy something instead? Some would. An awful lot wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought. So it's not, it's not, I don't think there's a simple solution to it at all. You know, it's, it's a mixed economy nowadays, isn't it? For the distribution of music, it used to be one thing. You went and bought something and you owned it. It's now loads and loads of different yeah. ways. And it will be even more different ways in the future. Yeah. Which brings us directly to the subject of, of who are the best people on talk shows. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, well, gosh. Which we were talking about only the other day. We were, because it's, it's a 25-year anniversary, I think, since uh, Hugh Grant appeared on Jay Leno, defending his... Um, <laughs> not defending, but... I've got to say. <laughs> no, not defending, I've got to but uh, uh, owning up to the, the terrible... Talking about the... the, 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 uh, the uh, Farago that he was uh, discovered in the middle of, and uh, and I thought he was fantastic on that. Do you remember? Do you remember that show? I did, what, yeah, I think so. Go on, remind. Remember me. what he said? He said uh, he said it's brilliant. Think how's he going to sum all sum all this up? You know, and he said, I think you know in life what's a good thing to do and what's a bad thing to do. And I did a bad thing, and there you have it. And that was his opening statement, which is absolutely brilliant. If he wasn't going to add to it, you know. Uh, He's really good on chat shows, I think. He is really good on chat shows. Incredible. Because you just 
you just like him, don't you? You like him. He's just really funny and he's really self-deprecating as, he, as he's had quite a lot of opportunity to have to be. But there are brilliant ones. I can remember Nicolas Cage on Wogan. Do you remember the time he came on and he was kind of, uh, you know, somersaulting onto the set and, you know, throwing money into the audience. People who have those incredible impacts. You know, Peter Cook was on Clive Anderson once in a pair of spats. He received mail order and he managed to get about five or ten minutes worth of rich comedy out of these terrible shoes he was wearing. Um, Drew Barrymore on Letterman. Do you remember that one with her back to the camera? She flashes Letterman because it's his birthday. That oh, was really God. Good. Oh, yeah, all, yeah. The, all these things are now on YouTube forever, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And do you know what the classic one is, actually? The kind of, the first really memorable chat show appearance I, 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 that sticks in my mind, which I think it may stick in other people's minds, too. And this is in the era long before YouTube, long before you could repeat things and call them back, which was, I think, Billy Connolly's first kind of major mainstream appearance in the UK. Oh, yeah. On Parkinson. You kind of read about him. People knew about him. He'd had some records out on Transatlantic, I think. He was obviously a big deal in Scotland, but, you know, down in London, less, less so. Um, and he came on. And I can't remember how he got to it, but he just told a joke. And I'm not going to attempt to repeat the joke. Oh, no, you must. No, I'm not going to do it, because I'm just going to tell people the punchline, and if they and, and if they remember the joke, it'll make them laugh all over again. And if, if they don't, well, it won't spoil anything. And the punchline was, well, I've got to have somewhere to park my bike, which, which is the most I remember promising it. material. I thought that's the funniest joke I've ever heard. It's the most. People were telling that joke for joke. weeks after. They were. It, it kind of made. Well, it was the Parkinson's show that it. made him. But it, that, that joke, joke on made, the Parkinson's show made his career. Because it was, it was slightly rude. It you was know, rude. It was kind of, kind of, can I get away with it? It was risque and it was incredibly funny. It was brilliant. And I think that was the most golden chat show moment. And so now I'm a bit of a student of this stuff because I nowadays. I spent hours on YouTube just watching old clips of these things. You know, and if you we're all guilty if, of it. If you sign, you know, if you if you follow a certain one, you, you get more sent to you. The person who's my per, my personal favourite chat show guest, and I'm sure if I was a chat show host, I would be just delighted every time he came along, is the great Nathan Lane, who's the yeah, American yeah, yeah. kind of. Very he's, he's a Broadway star, really. He's a stage yeah. actor, although he's he's done TV and he's done movies and so forth. And he's he's I wouldn't say he's camp, but you know, there's a bit of that there. And he just he he goes on any of these shows, and you can tell he, he he's his job is to kind of relieve the host of any tension. You know what I mean? And he effectively yeah. just goes on and starts. He just talks, you know, and then occasionally the host may may you know, interject slightly, but it sort of doesn't matter really because Nathan has got his bit. He's gonna he's come along, he's fashioned something based on an anecdote, something happened to him recently, somebody he met at a party or whatever, and he's just an absolute joy as a performer on sitting on the on the sofa on a chat show. He's just absolutely brilliant. I love him, and um, you know, I if I were if I were a kind of any of those guys, you know, Jimmy Kimmel or whatever, 
and you saw him on the gas list, you think, God, life is I can so relax. I can so much. Absolutely. No, he's mind, a genius. Mind you, nowadays, I do think chat show guests are a lot better than they used to be. Do you remember there was a long period of time when they, when they couldn't get them to do anything but plug the book or something like that? Whereas, oh, God. Well, do you remember Meg Ryan on Parkinson, that fantastic one? Oh, Meg God. Ryan went on and he said, so, you know, you're here to talk about your new film. She said, yeah, I don't like, um, don't like doing that. So he said, well, you know, why not? I said, well, I mean, I don't mind acting. You know, obviously, I'm an actor. I'm a, I'm a film star, but I don't like promoting this. Well, you're here. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm required to be here. Well, you, you know, now you're on, you know, to, 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 you know give us a turn. You know? And she just wouldn't play the game. And he thought, this is moronic, you know, because now you know that you've got to, you've got to make your mark you very, very, very quickly. And also in formats like Graham Norton, which I love, you've got to make your mark collaboratively. You've got to go get in there. You've got to shine while you get your, your three minutes. And the rest of the time, you've got to join in with the others. And, you know, and joining with whatever whatever cape, group caper is going on. Is, is it the hard. case? I was I was just thinking of Graham Norton. I didn't check this. Is it the case in Graham Norton that they don't have any backs on the chairs? Ah, they're sitting on they're on a bench, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> that could be. I'm not quite sure. I can't quite visualise it now, but it might be. They're they're on it. Yeah. So it it kind so of makes them, it makes them sit up. Keeps keeps you alert. <laughs> very very good. It's you know. You're you're the kind of junior member of this, you know. It's not like yeah, yeah. Where you, where you my, see. my one of my favourite chat show moments, which I've never, I didn't see at the time. It's not on YouTube, but it's it's legendary. Is the Peter Cook one? Do you know that one? Go on, which one? In 1971, Peter Cook. Somebody thought it was a really good idea to have Peter Cook fronting his own chat show, the host of his own chat show. Oh god, god. And I think they only had two, at most, three episodes. <laughs> they just canned it. It was so absolutely terrible. And he was a combination of being incredibly nervous. Because, I mean, everyone thinks that because you're a great performer and uh, you're a comedian and you can just get on stage and, and uh, hold court, that you might be good as a presenter. It's a completely different discipline, completely isn't it? Different. Totally and utterly different discipline. You've got to listen, you've got to steer, you've got to manoeuvre people, you know. And uh, anyway, to this, and I think on his first show, he had Kirk Douglas on, who was over in London to promote some movie or something. And Peter Cook was, A, probably a bit pissed, and B, so nervous that um, his opening salvo, instead of saying, how are you? He said, who are you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a boy? Right, if yeah. I were to tell you that in our, in our lifetimes, there has been a short-lived chat show presented by a former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, would you believe me? And would you be able to name the Prime Minister? A, a former British Prime Minister? Absolutely. Had a chat show. Had a chat show. I'm going to go away and check this afterwards, but Are I'm pretty sure? sure. I'm pretty damn sure. And was it within the last one? Well, by definition, it's obviously... Yeah, I said in our, in our lifetime. It's, that is unbelievable. I just... Well, I know... I, well, good heavens. Michael Gove, who was never Prime Minister, certainly did a lot of TV presenting when he was a kid. Certainly... And, uh, is it Gordon Brown? No. I don't, Dave, I don't know. Go on, I give up. I've, got, I've literally got the faintest idea. So, 1979, okay, there was a chat show called Friday Night, Saturday Morning, and the editions of the 12th and 19th of October, 1979, were the first television shows ever hosted by a former or sitting British Prime Minister. Harold Wilson had resigned just three years earlier, and he seemed like a media-savvy personality. He seemed a natural for a, a chat show. And... Uh, 
And so it was a disaster. Wilson was at a loss, often leaving gaps while he tried to think of a question to ask his guests, notably Harry Seacom. <laughs> when asked what Shakespearean roles she would have wished to have played, Pat Phoenix listed some, then said wistfully, but I'm a bit past it now. Failing to pick up on this, Wilton, Wilson attempted another question, at which point Phoenix exclaimed, say no. One critic described Wilson's reading the autocue as if it were the Rosetta Stone. It was in it. <laughs> when Channel 4 did the 100 TV moments from hell, it was in there. So I was right. That is, you were absolutely right. I never knew that. That is breathtaking. So, absolutely you know. astonishing. I love the idea that he couldn't think of a question as if you hadn't gone on and prepared endless reams of questions, you know. Uh, the idea that you'd run out. Well, I suppose you're the Prime Minister. You don't ask questions. You get you, you get used to being, being, being asked them all the yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. There you go. So Theresa May, you know, may, may yet surprise us. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Thanks to our new patrons. We're yes. deeply grateful. And so by name, that glorious roll call uh, is as follows. Robbie Yates. Thank you very much. Andrew. Thank you very much, Robbie. I always thought you were a sound chap. Who was that? Sorry. Andrew Cumming. And also Andrew. I think no less of Andrew. Mark Shilito. And I always said Mark was underrated. Yeah, and now finally he comes forward. Eternally in his debt. Gareth Davis. Keris. Gareth Davis. Gareth Davis. Gareth Davis. Sorry, Gareth Davis. Sorry, Gareth. Often confused with Keris. Sorry. Not quite right. Thank you, Gareth. Or indeed, Gary Davis. Woo Gary, Gary Davis. Woo yeah, yeah. Gary Davis. And also Bill Ambrose. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much, Bill. Indebted. Fantastic. Very nice to have you all on board. And I hope you'll join us on Friday evenings for our, uh, for our usual Patreon quiz. Six o'clock in the evening, uh, we'll send you a Zoom link. You can take part in that and see if you can get your name on the Hall of Fame for managing to identify pop icons on the basis of uh, items of trivia, which I, I list one at a time. I'll tell you what I was thinking. I'll tell you what I was thinking the other day. Cool. Uh, when Obama was in the White House, the kind of great and the good of the arts and musicians, foremost among them, couldn't wait, obviously, to, to be alongside him and to show their support for him and all that kind of thing. And then when Trump entered the White House, <laughs> they, they, not one of them could be drawn there apart from Kid Rock and Ted Nugent, if I'm That's correct. But but here's the point. So so Obama had the had the uh, you know the total support of the kind of artistic and creative community. Trump doesn't. Yes. I think we, we can, we can safely expect, assume that's true. Safely yeah. assume that. Has it made a hapeth of difference? It's hard to tell, isn't it? Because you know, <laughs> the obvious thing is they appear to be pretty, I mean, do you remember that tour in um uh, 2004 vote for change do you remember yeah, that yeah, yeah. tons of, i think we covered it on word magazine tons and tons of rock stars springsteen tracy chapman um rem i mean a massive campaign all over through the swing states of america to try and stop george bush getting in and to get them to vote for john kerry well i i, I simply don't know either these things don't convert people or 
or, or people who like your music and might be right wing can separate the two things and quite happy to uh, to simply like your music and not be remotely interested in your politics. I really don't know. Do we have? No, I, I, I don't know at all. Uh, and it could be that they have a they have a part in kind of getting out the vote or suppressing the vote. That may yeah. You know, but I don't think there's any indication that any of that stuff changes anybody's mind. <laughs> That's the thing that interests me, you know. Yeah, because there is always kind of, uh, you know, that people have a kind of historic mission to believe they can change minds, and there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that they do, really. It's interesting that that, that the left wing are. Uh, agonized by the idea of right-wing rock stars. I mean, the, who were the right-wing rock stars in this country? There's a suggestion once, wasn't Stuart Copeland, might be one, Gary Newman, Phil Collins, do you remember? Oh, who were the, I know, and they were somehow kind well, of tarn. Were... <laughs> yeah. And, and yet the, 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 the right-wing never suggests that they disapprove of anybody, anyone, any, any celebrities being left-wing. Well, they kind of expect it, don't they, really? That's, yeah. That's standard, the way, the way things arts, go. Arts, isn't it? It's the yeah. way things go. It's the arts, yes. Yes. So, uh, you know, uh, whether, uh, you know, whether uh, celebrities will be weighing in on the coming American election in November or not, I doubt it, actually. I doubt it. I doubt whether they will be. What, because they think in their heart of hearts it isn't making any difference? Well, that they I can't don't, convert people who... I, I, I don't know. I just don't think they will be. Uh, we, shall, we shall see. We shall see. I don't know. The Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007. And finally, Sam Wiles has just written in. Thank you, Sam. This is brilliant. And he says, I don't normally write this podcast, but I had to after hearing your stack waddy game. He said, and he's given us one, David. I'm going to try it on you. All right, okay. go on. Below are my two auditions for the stack waddy game. Fake entries are the ones highlighted in bold. Fair enough. Okay, unreleased Paul McCartney song titles. So three of these, uh, and one of them is fake. Okay, so two unreleased of these are, are, Paul McCartney. Yeah, two of these are songs that McCartney recorded, but has yet to release. And one of them is fake. Okay, a lover's love, the great cock and seagull race, and fishy matters underwater. Okay, oh a lover's love, the great cock and seagull race. Fishy Matters Underwater. God. Three unreleased McCartney songs. Fishy Matters Underwater. It's not. No, uh -huh. it's not. Which is rather quite a good, that's quite a good title. It's very McCartney, isn't it? As is the great cock and seagull race, actually. No, it's A Lover's Love. That's the ringer. Oh, that's well. the ringer, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Tom Waits' bootleg album titles. You may have some of these, of course, okay? Three Tom Waits' bootleg album titles. One of them, a ringer, okay? At the Circus, spelt with a K. Howling on the Road and Cold Beer on a Warm Night. The ringer is Cold Beer on a Warm Night. It's not. No, oh, no, 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 it's Howling on the Road. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.